0: One thing is clear in this big and sometimes overwhelming world – knowledge is beautiful. And it is the blending of knowledge that makes us better and stronger, as people and as a species. And yes, hopefully wiser, too. I'm very excited about today's show, as our guest today is blending Western psychotherapy with Eastern philosophies and practices, such as meditation, for amazing results. The art of flourishing, finding inner balance in a chaotic world. That's our topic here today on An Organic Conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helge Helberg. We're speaking with an expert today about how to work with the mind and our thoughts in the most holistic way possible, by marrying the best practices in regard to psychotherapy, psychology, and our minds from around the world. He has written numerous books on the topic, and we will be discussing his newest book, The Art of Flourishing, a Guide to Mindfulness, Love, and Self-Care in a Chaotic World, today here on the show. And that is our topic, how to stay calm and sane and maybe even happy this year. All that and more coming up in just a minute here today on an organic conversation. I'm your host, Helge Helberg, and this show is made possible by Fry Vineyards, America's first organic winery, family owned and operated. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Award winning wines at frywine.com. That's F R E Y W I N E.com. And thank you also to Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables that has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. From grocery store to company cafeteria to caterers and personal chefs, anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at earl'sorganic.com. And we're back here to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Hellberg. The Art of Flourishing, Finding Inner Balance in a Chaotic World. That's our topic here today. And on the phone now, joining me from Westchester, New York, is Dr. Jeffrey Rubin, the author of The Art of Flourishing, a Guide to Mindfulness, Love and Self-Care in a Chaotic World, among many other titles. Dr. Rubin, do we have you on the line?
1: We do. Thanks for having
0: me. <laughs> Such a pleasure. I have dabbled within the world of Eastern philosophies and meditation myself, and I'm very excited to have you on the show. And you really have dedicated your career and your life to this topic of blending Western psychotherapy and Eastern modalities for the the most effective outcome. And um, thanks for making time today. It's wonderful to have you. Let's start with giving our listeners a a background on your work. When did you start in the blending, or when when did your interest in psychotherapy really begin, and how did you bring in the Eastern philosophies as well?
1: I think we have to go to my teenage years, When I was a very uh, dedicated athlete, I played basketball, and I was, as I joke, typically Western condition male, where winning was everything. (laughs) And I was in a game my senior year, and we scored a basket, or I scored a basket with 10 seconds to go, and we were up by one, and my teammates were elated. And then the other team scored a basket with five seconds to go, and my team was deflated. And a a strange calm descended upon me, and I walked over to my coach, who was um, also my English teacher, and I put my hand on his shoulder, and I said, just tell them not to panic and to get me the ball. So one of my teammates rolled the ball in, and those out there who play basketball, the clock doesn't start counting down until your hands touch the ball. So he rolled it to me from the end line to midcourt, and then I turned and began dribbling up the court. And a strange thing happened, which was I entered a kind of other realm, it felt like. I was not aware of the squishing of sneakers on the hardwood. I wasn't aware of the cheers of the cheerleaders. I was not aware of um, victory. I was not fearful of defeat. I just entered this kind of quiet realm that felt almost timeless, where there was just the movement up the court. And I, I took a shot just as the clock, the buzzer sounded, and it happened to go in, and we we won by one point. And in the locker room afterwards, I was not as ecstatic as I would have expected. In fact, I was perplexed. What realm had I touched into? What doorway had opened up? Mm. And I so I sort of stalled in the locker room while everyone was showering. I took an extra long amount of time. And everyone out. Everyone went out to the bus afterwards to take us home, because it was an away game. You know, about an hour from where we lived. And I was just contemplating what had happened and how could I enter that realm again? What was that realm? How could I enter it? And how could I repeat it? So then uh, I just sort of filed those questions away, and I, I went to Princeton University, and I was a student in the humanities, and I took art history and philosophy and English literature and. Uh, you know, Renaissance history, and uh, all sorts of stuff all over the map. And I read widely. I read about 8 to 12 hours a day. And uh, I just tried to figure out, tried to get the sort of best education I could get in the United States as to what happened. And the questions were not answered. And then senior year, I had a friend who I think now is a translator of Tibetan texts. And he started exposing me to the sort of new currents that were in the air a little bit with yoga. This stuff was very different place than it is now in the culture, Buddhism, yoga. Yes. It was not in the prominent place that it is now. And so I started sort of reading and exploring, and this was the year after college, after Princeton. And when I, I read widely and wildly in uh, various religious and mystical and spiritual traditions, Christian mysticism and Jewish mysticism and Buddhism and Taoism. I would, you know, work by day and read by night. And what I began to feel, this took me a few, each of the stages I'm going to describe took several months. So I began to feel there was a common core to what these wisdom traditions were talking about. And it had something to do with opening the heart and living a life of fundamentally greater uh, compassion and empathy and connection and service to others. And that took me a few months to realize. It was a common core. And then it took me a few months to realize that this had nothing to do with thinking about it, but it had to do with living it. That was So that was several months. And then I realized that one needed practices to do it. It just didn't happen, at least for me, it didn't seem to happen
0: sure. completely
1: spontaneously. So I read about a meditation retreat at the Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts, and I went up there for a Christmas retreat. It was led by Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield, three of the eminent um, Buddhist teachers in the country. And it just really clicked in. I mean, it just really clicked in. It was, it was profoundly powerful, profo- profound, profound a power in terms of unconscious stuff arising and uh, connection with others and compassion and empathy. And at the same time, I was in graduate school at Columbia studying to be a therapist. And I began to pursue both as intensely as I could, Eastern meditative contemplative tradition and Western psychotherapeutic and psychoanalytic tradition, you know, following the ethics, taking it extremely seriously. It was my whole life. I had I had the passion, you know, of a young adult, and it was my whole life to pursue this stuff. You know, I'd walk down the street and be trying to embody the Buddhist ethics I had been reading about. I'd have a sandwich, I'd see, you know, a person <laughs> in the park in the city who was struggling, and I'd just quietly put half the sandwich next to them and, walk, you know, walk away. You know, or I'd walk down the street and try to send love to everyone I ran into, or I'd try to become aware on ever deeper levels of whether I was gossiping in my speech or speaking about third parties and try to eliminate that. So I was really trying to live the teachings, is what I'm trying to say. And then I had a wonderful yoga teacher, really a philosopher, who became a friend in Northern California named Joel Kramer, And Joel said something to me very, very profound. He said, don't force the synthesis before it organically emerges. So then for years, when people were beginning to come out with this, you know, when there were conferences in New York on psychotherapy and uh, Buddhism, I just sort of quietly kept studying both as deeply as I could with with wholeheartedness. Mm -hmm. And then down the road, I began to get glimpses of ways in which I thought... They were each wonderful and yet subtly incomplete. You know, when you think about it, uh, we, we, let's start with Freud, for example. Freud was never analyzed. He did what was we call now a self-analysis. And as the older analysts used to joke, the problem with self-analysis is countertransference. By countertransference, I mean for people out there that are not um, professionals. It means the sort of reaction coming from the therapist part that interfere with the effectiveness of the of the therapy. It's one's own blind spot yes. that get in the way. Mm-hmm. And so I realized Buddha did the same thing. Buddha analyzed himself. So unlike a lot of people that would idealize one or the other or denigrate one or the other, Buddha Buddha or Freud, or any of their, you know, cohorts and colleagues and successors I really tried to find the deepest germs of truth in each tradition and yet look at them reflectively, look at them critically, not idealize them and assume they were the the last word on truth, but assume they were human creations and might have blind spots. And I began to just feel each was wonderful, but each was
0: complete. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the, the difference or the similarities? What have you found uh, and we do want to get into your book and what what people will find in how do you flourish in difficult times what have you found as the fundamental differences between eastern and western approaches to mental health and mindfulness and the and the similarities
1: one of the fundamental differences the goals are fundamentally different and that's easy to miss in our contemporary climate of in a way mindfulness to eliminate pain and mindfulness to feel better. In a way, I think a disaster in the United States has been the happiness movement. I've written an article, it's online, people can read it if they're interested, called The Unhappy Truth About Positive Psychology. And I think we have to ask why the emphasis on mindfulness now, why the emphasis on happiness one of the em- reasons for the, uh, the emphasis on happiness is people are very, very depressed. They're very, very dispirited. And this antedates Trump, and it antedates the strange, um, crazy, insane politics of the United States right now. Way before this, this, mm-hmm. was, this was going on. And mindfulness, one of the attractions to mindfulness is people are unbelievably distracted and unbelievably multitasking. You can have a couple in bed and they're they're not really connecting and emotionally or physically they're each on their own devices or you can have a couple at dinner or you can have friends at a meal and everybody's looking at their devices it's everybody's quote connected but in this um depersonalized alienated sort of way largely i mean that the, the, the technology is wonderful in a lot of ways but there's of course also yes this deep disconnection and alienation okay so In this context, it's easy to think of mindfulness the way it's being presented by some these days to remove symptoms. And I think that, let me be, you know, direct about that. I think that's fine, but the danger is that the deeper goals drop away. And so one of the deeper goals is soteriological, which is a word that means sort of fundamental liberation. And so Buddhism, you know, originally was about a kind of, profound and thoroughgoing emancipation of one's whole being, not just feeling good, not just feeling happier, not just getting rid of pain. So one of the things about goals is they're really different. That goal is different than the psychotherapeutic goal. Psychotherapeutic goal varies depending on the school of thought and the tradition, but I want to sort of put in a vote that the, the Buddhist Goal is just really, really different than the psychotherapeutic goal. I, In fact, mm, I'm sorry. In fact, as Jack Engler wrote years ago, who's one of the more interesting people that writes about both these traditions, Jack Engler, the therapeutic goal, the sort of cohesive self with person feeling greater self esteem, Jack argued years ago that that's an arrested state of development according to the Buddhist model. Now, and right now, I'm not. You know, gonna that this is an individual choice. People have to see what they think about it. But the goals are fundamentally different. One is to build up a a uh, an identity of uh, continuity over time, pride in oneself, and in the other tradition. It's seeing through the illusoriness of some of that. The um, the fact that we don't exist in the way we think we exist, according to the Buddhist tradition.
0: Yeah, and that's exactly what came up for me. In a simple way put, is it fair to say that the Western models still sees us as You know, mind body connected. If we have pain, we suffer. It's our body. The Buddhist way, though, says we have a body. There's a capital S self, a larger self that is observing the body that was given to us, that is observing the mind. We are not our thoughts. We're not our body. There's another entity and there's space between the two. So even in suffering, you could observe the suffering and actually you, capital S self, stays calm within that. Is that a fair way to describe that, or am I missing the point?
1: No, you can describe it that way. I'm hesitating because within some in some of that sounds a little more Hindu. Within the Buddhist tradition, there wouldn't be a capital S self so much. Uh, he, here's a story that illustrates it. Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg were with one of their great teachers, a woman named Deepama from India, years ago, and they went to an automated bank machine and... The building looked sort of small and narrow that they went in the bank, and they processed their transactions. And Deepa Moss, if if memory serves, was uh, concerned and pensive afterwards. And Joseph and Sharon asked her what was wrong, and she said the poor person that has to stand behind that wall and do that all day. She, re- she felt empathy and compassion mm. for the person she imagined behind the wall processing these bank transactions. And they said, no, 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 there's no one behind. It's just, it's sort of impersonal transactions happening, you know, mechanically. And she said, ah, that's like the Buddhist view of self. So in other words, it's it's more that these processes like perception and memory are happening, but according to the Buddhist tradition, but there's no owner of it. There's no one person behind it all. Mm -hmm. And so that sense, can lead to a fundamentally different experience of self. I think what has not been talked about enough, I don't mean to get technical for the audience, but I think what has not been talked about enough are the, the dangers of that or the blind spots. For example, increasingly in my practice, I work in New York City and in Bedford Hills, New York, increasingly in my therapy practice, I have people that you know, suffered severe trauma. And you'll hear many contemporary Buddhists say, oh, that's just your story, you know, let go of your story. I'll have clients in therapy and they'll talk about friends or colleagues or even Buddhist teachers who'll say to them when they report pain that they, you know, emotional pain, that's just your story, just let go of the story. The problem is one has to really acknowledge the story and go into the story, I think, to get liberated Uh from the story. Yes. And so that would be one example of a, a Buddhist potential blind spot. That there's a, my teachers used to say that the therapy focused on content and Buddhism focuses on process. The process of how the mind works, not so much the specific content. Frankly, I think we need both. I think if you only focus on content, you lose a sense of the process. And if you only focus on process, you may be uh, marginalized and disrespect content. And I think a more holistic model would honor both.
0: And we want to talk about that right after the break. I'm speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Rubin, uh, one of the most outspoken people on the topic of mindfulness, love, and self-care in a chaotic world. That is also the subtitle of his new book, The Art of Flourishing. He is joining us today from Westchester, New York. Um, Dr. Rubin, stay on the line. We're going to uh, take a quick break, and we'll right back with more. And we want to talk about your book, What People Will Find, and talk about the fantasy of control for the possibility of compassion, that exchange. Um, we'll be right back. This is An Organic Conversation, and I'm Helge Helberg. This show is brought to you by Equal Exchange. A worker-owned cooperative that ensures your food is environmentally sound and socially just. Equal Exchange has been creating big change for small farmers for over 30 years by offering certified organic and fair trade coffee, tea, chocolate, bananas, and avocados. More on Equal Exchange at EqualExchange.coop. That's EqualExchange.coop. And by Utterly. Offering beautiful and fun clothing for boys and girls that is made entirely from the unused fabric of prominent apparel manufacturers. Each garment reduces our eco footprint by preventing this fabric from reaching the waste stream. Adderly. Making sustainability fashionable and fashion sustainable. For more information, Adderly.co. That's U-T-T-E-R-L-Y dot C-O. And we are back here to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. The Art of Flourishing, Finding Inner Balance in a Chaotic World. That's our topic here today. And with us is Dr. Jeffrey Rubin, the author of The Art of Flourishing, A Guide to Mindfulness, Love, and Self-Care in a Chaotic World, who's joining us today from Westchester, New York. Dr. Rubin, before the break, we started to talk about your book, The Art of Flourishing, you have many books out there in this regard, Meditative Psychotherapy, The Marriage of East and West, and Practicing Meditative Psychotherapy, Pathways to Self-Transformation, all available on Kindle. Um, Your new book, The Art of Flourishing, what will people find? And I know one of the reviewers has said you are an expert or you're suggesting exchanging the fantasy of control for the possibility of compassion. Can you Walk us through your book and, and work that answer um, in as well?
1: Sure. As I began to critique this prevalent American goal of happiness, what I realized was we do need a vision of the good life. And my alternative is flourishing instead of happiness. The problem with happiness is that it's, it's fickle, it's about how I feel this moment, it's ever changing. It's very elusive. There's a best-selling American author who I think said she was unhappy because she wasn't happier. That's exactly the kind of trap one falls into. I think happiness exists, and I appreciate it as much as the next person, <laughs> but I think the search for it uh, narrows one's perspective, makes them more self-involved, and makes them suffer more. Uh-huh. So my alternative to flur- is flourishing. And flourishing isn't so much about how I feel, which I don't feel the world needs right now. Flourishing is more about how we live. So, for example, I could be caring for a a sick relative, and it doesn't feel very good, but I'm flourishing because I'm doing the right thing. I'm helping them. They're much older. You know, I'm doing the best I can. I could dive into a body of water to save a neighbor's dog, it doesn't feel very good. I'm not happy, but to me, um, it's flourishing.
0: Sounds like so, love to me,
1: honestly. <laughs> so flourishing is more about how we live r- rather than how we feel. And to me, there there's several key elements. Um, one element is, is living well, living sort of rightly. And that has to do with taking care of oneself. And that has various dimensions from appreciating beauty in the world, uh, cultivating harmony between mind and body, uh, handling our emotions wisely, following our passions, discovering our purpose, uh, embodying our values, um, living an ethical life, and then being authentic, and then drawing on that base to have better relationships with other people, with coworkers with those we love, with friends, intimate relationships, whatever is appropriate in one's life, wherever one finds oneself in in one's life. And so the way I thought about the way the the book is organized is I realized that um, self-care is the foundation of intimacy, and intimacy is the fruition and final stage of self-care. So the end of self-care isn't, you know, my meditation time, or my body fat, or my this or that, it's going beyond myself. It's service to others. It's connecting with mm-hmm. other people. It's having a healthy relationships. So the two are often looked at as opposed, self-care and intimacy, but I think they're intimately inter- interconnected.
0: Beautiful. Well, there's this saying, intimacy means into me you see. So when we allow the capacity for somebody else to really see us and our state of being, um, that that is amazing and that is beautiful and that is intimacy in that moment. Um, but what you're describing sounds like living in a, in a state of compassion or love. Is that an overstatement?
1: No, that's, those, those are elements of it. Uh, those are elements of it. Uh, but something that many people have to watch out for, I, I have this with many women I've treated and increasing numbers of men, that they get involved in what I call spiritual selflessness, and they're very, very generous and uh, loving towards others, but they neglect themselves. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's really, it's really both. It's really taking good care of ourselves. And the, the heart of that for me, Hulga, is figuring out what helps you flourish, whether it's friendship, gardening, service to others, uh, passions that you have, figuring out what helps you flourish, and then building that into your life instead of fitting it into your life. We, we, the audience could make a line down the middle of the page. Take a pad, make a line down the middle of the page. And on the left, write what you like about your life, what's working in your life. And on the right-hand side, what's not working. And inevitably the difference is the stuff on the left-hand side that's working is built into your life. You always meet the friend you know, once a week. You always connect in with your partner, you know, certain amount of times during the week. And on the right side, I'd like to meditate, I'd like to declutter, I'd like to do yoga, I'll try to, but it's not built in. When it's built in it's unquestioned. It's it's an unquestioned part of the fabric of your life, like toiletries in the morning. Mm-hmm. And and so that's the key to figure out what helps you flourish and then and build it into your life. And then use that as the springboard to really feel good about yourself, and then you will connect with other people in a fundamentally healthier way.
0: Lovely. Can you speak about the exchanging the fantasy of control for the possibility of compassion? That really stuck with me as well.
1: I'm not sure what the reviewer meant. What, uh, what is it? What is it? And I know the reviewer actually too. What, what does uh, what does that mean to you, or what what excites you about that? And then we'll pl- just play with it.
0: First. Sure. Well, we do think we are in charge, right? And of course, we are fundamentally not. But I've never extended that into exchanging that the fantasy of control because we really don't know what will happen for the possibility of compassion. So that that we are embracing the unpredictable. Uh, in a In a state of readiness, which again brings me to the heart it's a heart space of readiness to whether we miss the train or we make the train or we you know whatever it may be um that one is dealing with. how does that land for you
1: okay, that's helpful you know in, in my Zen training, one of the central notions is is being unself consciously intimate with your experience being not separate from your experience, but wholeheartedly embracing what it is that you encounter in your life. And, and so it's more the spirit of that, that we can't often control the results, but we can control the integrity with which we approach something. And we need to focus more on that and sort of doing our best for ourselves and others, not the conclusion, which is sometimes out of our hands, often out of our hands. And that's the control part. We have to know... We have to just put things out in the world that come from a good place, that uh, honor our deepest values and vision, and then we have to let go and realize that it's whether, you know, an idea sinks or swims, whether it takes hold in the culture, that's out of our hands.
0: Mm -hmm. Is that true also for for conflict with uh, another human being, where we approach something truly from a place or how do you do that how do you approach something knowing you're coming from a place of love is that just an awareness that you are doing that in that moment and no matter what the outcome is no matter if the person can meet you there or not that's that's not up to us
1: That's exactly right. Yeah, the perspective shifts from an in a way you could say this is eastern the perspective shifts from some imagined fantasy or goal to Focusing on the correct texture of your effort. That's all that's within your hands most of the time. Hmm. So in a interpersonal conflict, one could really strive to understand the other person from within the other person's point of view. Psychotherapists call that empathy. You're, so you're understanding it from the other person's point of view, and you bring as much compassion in the way you communicate it, sensitivity to their con- emotional conditioning, sensitivity to their vulnerability what i call the the mind mm-hmm. mind field in the relationship you don't want to you want to minimize triggering that and and then after that knowing that whether the person joins you is is, is also up to them it's a co-created thing it's not something mm-hmm. you can totally you know control yourself
0: beautiful love it I want to come back to, to the beginning of time when you started this with your um, basketball game. You have years, you have decades of experience, you have a lifetime of experience. What are the, some of the best practices that you've seen work best for people? What, what are you treating, what conditions, and what are some ways for our listeners to integrate some of them in the easiest way?
1: That's a great question. First of all, I want to say that I think it's really, really important in these times that people live authentic lives, that people become this sort of uh, what Heidegger would call their own most self. And because there's so much confusion and there's so much, it's so speedy and we're so bombarded and there's so much confusion, it's easy to, for many of us to take submissive positions And then be um, vulnerable to demagogues, you know, people that are quite willing to tell us what to do and how to live. And we have to challenge that. We have to be alert to that. Um, There's a wonderful quote from the poet E.E. Cummings. To be nobody but yourself in a world which is doing its best night and day to make you everybody else is the hardest battle which any human being can fight and never stop fighting. So I think that this is really important to be authentic. And so I'm hesitant to, you know, to sort of recommend things because I think people should find what works for them given their own unique nature and so forth. But I'll just talk a little bit about um, yes. five practices that have been central to me. But I heartily encourage the audience to trust and to search for what's really spoken to you over the years, whether it's something that you used to do that you stopped whether it's something that you're doing now, try to stay with that and trust that because that's really crucial. If we could all do that and we could all support each other in doing that, we would have a transformed world. But so they might be that,
0: listening, before I said they might be listening to the radio show and get inspired by your words of your suggestions right now um, so I I do trust our listeners' authority to to say yes this really is grabbing me or this is really not. So with with that in mind, yes, please. Yes.
1: <laughs> so here are the things that have been huge, hugely important for me: um, Buddhist meditation, by which I mean for those out there who haven't meditated, paying careful, non-judgmental attention moment to moment to. Uh, listen to you know, listen to the sound of my voice, to taste what you're eating, to, to um, see what you look at. Years ago, I taught in a drug, I volunteered in a drug treatment a center on Long Island, New York. And my idea was that I could bring yoga and, and Buddhist meditation to kids, teenagers that were addicted. This was in the 1970s. And so I, I volunteered Norford this free eight-week course, and I taught them yoga and Buddhist meditation, kids that were struggling with substance abuse, alcohol, pot, uh, cocaine, etc. And a girl at the end of the eight weeks said, when I asked for feedback about what worked and what didn't work, one of the girls said, I used to look but not see. I used to taste. I used to eat but not taste. I used to listen but not hear. And now I taste when I eat, and I see when I look, and I hear when I listen. So meditation is about cultivating that. And the idea is that there are practices that you can do that that cultivate that and enhance our capacity. That you're not limited in that capacity, or you're not genetically Mm -hmm. limited, but it's a capacity you could grow. So Buddhist meditation has been one of the north stars for me all these years. Another is the yoga tradition. Uh, One of the difficulties, I don't know so much in Canada. I have a very close friend in in Toronto, and uh, she's talked to me about uh, one of her yoga teachers who she really loved. So I don't know about uh, other cultures as much as I know about the States. But here, often yoga is a diminished version of what yoga can be. It's often asanas, the physical postures. But yoga, like Buddhism, is actually an eightfold path. Uh, yama, Niyama. The, uh, this is the the Sanskrit. Yama, Niyama, Asana, Prana, Yama, Pratyahara, Dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi. That's the that's the. Um, I just chanted the Eightfold Path. And so it's ethics, it's breathing, it's sensitivity to to exposure to sense sensory phenomena, it's states of focus and concentration. So it's many many things, but including breathing and conscious use of the senses. That's Pratyahara is conscious use of the senses, and pranayama is um, alertness to breathing. So the yoga tradition has been deeply influential, but the whole yoga tradition, not just asana, breathing, conscious use of the senses, focus. And, and the yeah. ethics, and mm-hmm. the focus. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so those two, Buddhist meditation and yoga, but yoga broadly defined. And then uh, psychoanalysis has been utterly transformative to me as a student as a client, patient, and as a practitioner. Just hugely. I don't think there's another tradition like it anywhere in the world and anywhere in history in terms of sort of deep diving into our self-blindness, our self-protective strategies, the importance of our history, how our development... Buddhism is not a developmental theory, and we need a developmental theory at times to understand. We need to understand, as Wordsworth said, the child... Is, he said it father to the man, but the child is father to the, you know, or mother to the mm-hmm. person, yeah. the adult. So I think it's helpful sometimes to know that history. So psychoanalysis has been hugely helpful. As So Buddhist meditation, yoga, psychoanalysis, and then within psychoanalysis, the idea of dreams. So studying my dreams has been hugely, hugely important. And one interesting theorist, those out there um, who are not in therapy or don't want to be in therapy, There's a man named Monty Ullman, U-L-L-M-A-N. I studied with some years ago before he died and then learned his method. And he has books in which dream appreciation, I think, is one of them. And there's a website, maybe in Sweden, that's devoted to his work. He was an American therapist. And he tried to create groups that lay people could operate where they would share dreams and work on dreams together. And if you've ever been in one, they're quite wonderful and they create quite an amazing environment of safety and trust and deep, deep, deep connection. I was once in one of these groups with two colleagues that I knew for decades, but we'd never been in this group together, and the stuff that was revealed in the group was stuff we didn't know about each other, and we got Mm. the friendship really deepened from from being in that group. So um, Buddhist meditation, yoga, psychoanalysis, dream work, and then finally, my current passion, and I'm completing a book right now about my own journey a little bit more. And my my folks both died last uh, fall. My I buried my dad on um, Halloween and my mother died 11 days later, the Friday after the Tuesday when Trump was elected. And so I have a me- sort of a combination memoir. It's a memoir that looks outward rather than inward. It looks inward in order to look outward, on the world and the parallel processes of insanity that went on in my family and that I see in America and the gaslighting. And, and I try to use my own life to illuminate how people could cope, uh, stay sane in an insane world now. And in, there, in that book, there's a chapter in the last section, What Gets Me Through the Night, um, about a Russian system of self-healing, self-exploration, self-healing, that has a lot of breathing and so forth. It's very, very radical and transformative. It's called Sistema, which means in Russian the system, and it also means self-knowledge. And I've been studying now about three years, and I'm finding it utterly profound, and I'm finding it working on stuff that was not touched by Buddhism or yoga or anything. Hmm. So it's quite wonderful. So if, and there's a great center in Toronto, and uh, one of the key practitioners in the world is in Toronto, Vladimir Vasilyov. So I would recommend that to anyone who felt like trying it. It has a lot of, a lot of awareness. Uh, it's taught in the spirit of the highest part of the teachings. In other words, the very way it's taught mirrors the philosophy. It's a very, very interesting system that I found um, endlessly interesting and transformative.
0: Wow, beautiful. Thank you. Our deepest condolences to your loss, of course. And oh, Thank you, thank you and it has birthed a a new book that is coming up among the books that you already have, Meditative Psychotherapy, The Marriage of East and West, and Practicing Meditative Psychotherapy, Pathways to Self-Transformation, and your new book, The Art of Flourishing, A Guide to Mindfulness, Love, and Self-Care in a Chaotic World, and that's Dr. Jeffrey Rubin, who joined us today from Westchester, New York. Um, Dr. Rubin, thank you so much for being a pioneer, really, in this work and, and creating so much value and insight and opportunity for all of us listening to you. A total pleasure to have you.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Helga, And thank you so much for the work you do. Yeah. It's really beautiful.
0: Thank you. Dido. We'll have you back soon. Okay. Thank Take you. Take good care. Bye-bye. Take care. Yep, bye. And we are switching gears, but we are staying with the topic of the art of flourishing, mindfulness around your plate. Here, of course, is the weekly update from the Produce Doc. What is coming in, what will you find in the retail store, how to buy it, the consumer segment of how to make the best purchase for the most flavor, all while considering your budget, here is what's in season. And as every week, we're speaking with the experts at Earl's Organic Produce in San Francisco, the premier wholesale distributor of only organic fruits and vegetables. And it's not Earl today, it's Ethan, Ethan Abendroth. Ethan, do we have you on the line?
2: Oh, yes, sir. How you doing,
0: <laughs> I'm I'm super great. Very fun oh, to fair. have you. How are you?
2: I'm well, thank you.
0: What is on your plate right now, Earl? Said you got to talk to Ethan, and uh, you have, I think, some crops that we really don't usually talk about that we might take for granted when we go to the retail store. What's what's your on your list right now as a buyer?
2: Well, the one thing that's on my mind, not so much on my list, would be uh, garlic. You know, garlic is one of those things that, like you said, you know, we uh, tend to take for granted. Um, and it's always there, and why is that?
0: and you're right i mean i couldn't even i feel like i'm i'm you know after 20 years of in the organic movement I feel (laughs) arrogantly so pretty knowledgeable and I don't know anything, I realize, because uh, no, that's not quite true. But garlic, wow, I couldn't even tell you where it's coming from throughout the season since it can be dried and stored fairly well. I always kind of assumed that it was here, at least in California, a, a domestic, at least domestic, if not local crop, but maybe not. What's the story with garlic?
2: Well, garlic, really, you know, back in the back in the late 90s, there were approximately a dozen uh, dozen or so commercial garlic growers in California. You know, and basically, what that's happened is the market's become more competitive with international pressure. Now we are left with just a handful of organic uh, organic garlic growers here in California. Um, it's kind of an interesting com- you know conversation, <laughs> in as much as how does this affect, you know, how do these national markets affect our local markets and what does it, you know, what does all of that mean?
0: Yeah. Is it is it a crop that is grown year round or does it have a specific season? How many seasons do we have for domestic garlic? And you're right. I mean, Christopher Ranch, right, comes to mind. There are yep, some well-known yep, yep. larger brands, organic and otherwise, right. of course, we have Gilroy, the Garlic Festival, a very large area that grows garlic. But what's the seasonality? F- let's start with domestic garlic first. How is it grown? When is it grown? And how much percentage of the market share do we actually carry here domestically?
2: Um, well, let's see. What well, we're looking at um, the garlic goes in the ground in the fall um, in September mm. and comes out in July. It takes uh, an extremely large amount of time ah, to be wow. in the ground. Oh, oh yes, it's a nine-month crop. Yeah. So when it comes out, it's kind of one of those—it's it's one of those special things, you know. It's been in there forever. You tied up a lot of land, and it comes up in July. So you'll start harvesting late June, let it cure up, and basically you're ready to start marketing middle late July with the California crop. Um, the California crop goes until it's pretty much sold out. Gilroy alone produces—I think the numbers last time I checked were 70 percent of the domestic supply of garlic. Mm-hmm. And we just use a lot of garlic. The garlic is sourced from all over the world. Um, Primarily our sources, though, Earl's does have the relationships where we're 10 months out of the year using U.S. garlic.
0: And so international pressure, I don't think consumers are aware of it. I think it's one of those onions, potatoes that that we always think comes from at least the U.S., if not California. Uh, Which countries are big in the garlic production that you buy from or that you see?
2: Well, currently, I mean, what I've found is that you know California garlic carries the day for our clientele. Um, I have had some success with a little bit of Mexican garlic. That seems to go okay with our customers. But outside, when you start getting outside of that, the California Bay Area customer really is in tune with that California product. However, what does come to the market is Mexico and Argentina. High-quality produce all the way across the board with both of them. It's just that uh, people really like that California, that California tag.
0: How do you do? You see the difference? Like, wh- how do you um, handle the product, or what is the once it's cured? Is garlic all the same, or does the local uh, terroir impact garlic just as any other crop, as carrots would, um, even though it's a completely different different crop? But do you see a taste difference in the way it stores? Like, what what? How is it for you, as the expert?
2: Well what I've what I've seen is that any you know variation in the soil are obviously going to bring out that terroir that's going to give you that different chemical balance yes um, you know the biggest the biggest place that I that I've tasted that would be in the sweetness or the hotness of the garlic itself um, I tend to prefer That's what I feel. That's what I taste when I taste it.
0: Mm-hmm. But between domestic and international imports of garlic, do you do you see a difference there?
2: You know, yeah. Again, it, it, it goes back to that. Uh, it goes back to that where it's grown. You know, you're going to get the you're going to get the salty, or you're going to get the spicy, or you're going to get the sweetness. Mm. You know, I found that Mexican um, Mexican garlic tends to be a little spicier, hotter. Oh, um, the Argentinian tends to be a little bit more. Again, that could be a bunch of different things—the variety, the soil. So, you know, I find, um, yeah, I do find they, they they taste different for sure. And I just would.
0: yeah, and and you were you were alluding to the pressure of the international market. Since we are selling out, would you still highly recommend buying local? I mean, the the entire show and our entire awareness in organic conversation and what Earl speaks about every week is about local local farmers because they do contribute to the local economy and local jobs and they're part of the fabric of local communities, of course. And yet hearing from you that we are selling out, that our domestic or even California-based garlic growers do sell out of product, What's the role of the international? Like, is that, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? How, how does that impact prices, and what, what should the consumer be aware of?
2: Well, you know, as far as good or bad, I think it really comes down to the supply and demand. If there's a supply there and there's a demand, it can be a good thing. And, you know, of course, um, you know, when you start to opening up international markets, all the question marks start coming up. However, nowadays, yeah. um I would say that, you know, the people who know are the people who are putting their, you know, their certifications on things. And you can generally trust that, you know, as far as that's being taken care of, everything is fine and that it is organic indeed. Um, you know, I'm always a fan of buying vocally, you know, so that's really where I kind of, find that's kind of where my tunnel vision is.
0: Yeah, and and the the two different large countries where you do offer from is Mexico and Argentina. We do get yes. we do get apples and other things from the southern hemisphere throughout the year as the seasons um, calm down here and uh, or, or end really with several other products. Um, interesting to know that garlic, more or less, because of demand and supply. But we have a local awareness. And yet we are all swimming within an international market. So it's good to hear that that nowadays you feel that the certification standards and the oversight and all that if you find, of course, with Mexico, kind of we, we know that now we talked about that on the show quite a bit. But even mm-hmm. from overseas in the southern hemisphere, if it's organic, you have long term relationship with those suppliers. Um, Absolutely. Do you ever get a chance to visit them?
2: I, well, we, yes, I have been down to Gilroy several times. Sure, but not not quite
0: (laughs) Argentina yet, right? Uh, No, I haven't. I haven't had a reason. You're going to talk with Earl about that. Yeah, you and I should go and report back. I
2: think we should, Helga. Yeah,
0: this is great. Thank you so much, Ethan. Um, Great for bringing awareness even to those niche crops. I mean, everyone uses it. Nobody really pays attention. I don't think people know where garlic really is from or how it's grown. Fascinating nine months growing season. Um, And yes, buy local and, of course, organic whenever you can, and there might be a supply from further away from Mexico or Argentina that you might find, but it's because our domestic local folks are selling out basically every year throughout. Good to know. Thank you so much for being part of the show. Again, that's Ethan Aubinrod, one of the expert buyers at Earls Organic, and um, enjoy your day, Ethan. We'll have you back very soon.
2: Well, thank you very much, Halgo. It was my pleasure. Thanks.
0: Take care. Bye-bye. And that was this week's edition of An Organic Conversation. Thank you so much for listening. A big thank you also to our associate producer, Kristen Ponger. An organic conversation is made possible through listeners like you and the fantastic support of our underwriters. Equal Exchange, a worker-owned cooperative that ensures your food is environmentally sound and socially just. Equal Exchange has been creating big change for small farmers for over 30 years by offering certified organic and fair trade coffee, tea, chocolate, bananas and avocados. More on equal Exchange at equalexchange.coop And utterly Offering beautiful and fun clothing for boys and girls that is made entirely from the unused fabric of prominent apparel manufacturers. Every garment reduces our eco footprint by preventing this fabric from reaching the waste stream. Udderly Making sustainability fashionable and fashion sustainable. For more information, Adelie.co. Also, Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor providing certified organic fruits and vegetables for your store, home, or business. Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? Anyone can buy directly from Earl's Organic at wholesale prices. The website is Earlsorganic.com And Fry Vineyards, America's first certified organic winery, producing organic and certified biodynamic wine without synthetic sulfites or other preservatives. Family-owned and operated since 1980. Fry Vineyards, Mendocino County Award-winning wines. For more information, Frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E. Com. Lastly, thank you as well to Bowman College, focused on holistic nutrition and culinary arts for over 20 years. Bowman College offers professional training programs that prepare individuals for careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Their website is BowmanCollege.org. That's B A U M A N college.org. If you missed parts of this show, or for any other episode, go to anorganicconversation.com or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, so you'll never miss an episode. And for more information, health tips, recipes, and your daily dose of inspiration, find us on Facebook and Instagram at anorganicconversation.com and on Twitter at Talk Organic. I'm Helge Helberg, and we'll be back with another great episode right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then.